Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. In this episode of the Aging Science Podcast by VitaDAO, I talked to David Meyer, a postdoc from the Björn Schumacher lab at Sikert in Cologne, and to Sarah Voisen, who now runs her own lab at the University of Copenhagen. Both of them are experts in epigenetics and bioinformatics. We talked about our takeaways from the ARDD conference, upcoming preprints, the importance of noise versus adaptive changes to epigenetic clocks, lack of diversity in human clock datasets, and finally, exercise and genome instability. This episode is a bit technical and speculative, but I hope you'll enjoy it nonetheless. It was a blast to talk to the two. Hello, everyone. Today, we're having like a very special episode of the Aging Science Podcast. We're all at the ARDD conference, and I'm happy to talk to Sarah Boysen and David Meyer. Maybe you can each briefly introduce yourself with one or two sentences. Sounds good. Um, I am an assistant professor at the University of Copenhagen, and uh, I'm a bioinformatician specializing in epigenetic aging. Okay, yeah, uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm David, a um, bioinformatician and current last year PhD student in Björn Schumacher's lab at the Seacard in Cologne. And um, I also mostly work on data analysis and especially also aging clocks. Happy to be here. So we can talk about aging clocks, epigenetics. Before we do this, maybe we can go through like, how did you like ARDD? Is it your most favorite conference? Which talks um, did you like? And what cool, interesting new things are happening in the field that you find amazing? Maybe David can start. Um, yeah, I really like the ARDD. Uh, my first one has been last year, so I'm eager to come back. It's a fantastic conference. Um, it's a cool mix of um, hard science as well as um, like crypto, of course, and uh, the business side. So it's an interesting mix and you can network a lot, um, meet a lot of interesting people. And yeah, the talks, of course, super interesting. It's really hard to actually pick just a few that I found most fascinating. Um, I like, for example, especially also the workshop uh, on Monday that um, Max Unfried uh, was doing because it was more, maybe a bit more hands on. You can discuss also a lot and um, get also insight into um, VitaDAO, especially. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, there were a lot of fantastic talks. Um, I really like, for example, Tony Viscaray's talk about the um, proteomic clocks that he developed so that you can really see different organ aging from one blood sample. And I think that was really fascinating. Okay, um, yeah, I also really enjoyed ARDD. It's my favorite conference that I uh, make sure that I attend every year, whether it is physically or remotely, but usually I, I can be there physically, which is great. Um, I, I think that there are some very interesting developments in the field of precision medicine, in the field of aging, trying to tailor anti-aging interventions to uh, a person's genetic background and also, you know, maybe the, the sex of the patient or um, any form of yeah, personalized uh, medicine. I think as well, uh, the interesting developments have to do with causality and trying to disentangle what is a cause and a consequence of aging and which changes are 
adaptive, which are beneficial, which are detrimental, which is essential to really target the basic mechanisms of aging. In this, uh, in this respect, I actually am going to say the same as David, I really enjoyed the proteomic clocks trying to show the differences in aging between the different organs. And this really mirrors the latest work by Morgan Levine, who is not at the conference this year, but she has, uh, she has a preprint on systems age, which is different epigenetic clocks for different organ systems from uh, just a blood uh, sample, which is very similar to that. And uh, of course, I'm fascinated by uh, everything related to epigenetic aging and Vadim Gladyshev's work as well. Yeah. yeah, it's good that you mentioned the applied or, or clinical aspects. So we got a lot of varied talks at ARDD. We had MDs coming, we had lay people as well. So it's, it's a great conference. People can just go there to listen to the talks, but it's also amazing for networking. And what I really like about it is that we're getting a lot of treatments that bring us one step closer to the clinic that are, we can potentially apply them. It used to be just caloric restriction a couple of decades ago, but now with Synalytics and reprogramming, it's moving closer to the clinic. We had a very cool talk about uh, reprogramming for vision loss at the ARDD. And we also had a lot of talks from MDs, how they're using clocks in practice. And maybe we can briefly touch on this topic later. And maybe before we talk about the use of, of clocks in clinical practice, we can just briefly go through what is epigenetics, what are clocks, how are they constructed. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so epigenetics is basically anything that has to do with how DNA is used by the cell to perform a specific function. So it's all modifications to the DNA that do not necessarily affect the DNA, do not, sorry, affect the DNA sequence, but affect the conformation of the DNA that then determine how this DNA is used by the cell to perform a function. And we know that during aging, the conformation of the DNA changes to the extent that the cells might start losing their capacity for uh, resilience, their uh, identity even. And we think that epigenetic mechanisms are one of the alterations of the epigenetic landscape is one of the primary um, aging hallmarks. And in this respect, that's why it's interesting to me, because it's one of the most fundamental mechanisms that may underpin a lot of the other hallmarks of aging, such as uh, senescence, st uh, stem cell dysfunction, etc. And the epigenetic clocks are purely machine learning algorithms that are entirely agnostic to the biology of aging. And they are just, they are just um, algorithms that are told to predict a certain outcome. So they select on the epigenome the changes that most um, accurately is going to predict the outcome of, uh, of interest, whether it is chronological age or biological age. And here I think it's also important to point out that there is epigenetics and methylation and epigenetic clocks are a small subset because you study just changes in one of these sites. Can you briefly explain how are these sites methylated and why this is most interesting to you? Yeah, um, so basically the, um, the epigenetic clocks do not capture the entirety of the age-related changes in the methylome that happen. So you've got millions and millions of changes in the average methylation level 
um, of specific uh, CPG sites and also of their uh, variants. But the epigenetic clocks capture just a fraction of them, sometimes uh, 10, sometimes 100. And it's just that linear combination that can predict your outcome as accurately as possible. Um, I don't know if you want to add something to that or... Um, maybe just generally, if we talk about epigenetics, most people, I guess, talk about DNA methylation, especially in the AG block field. But there's also this other part of epigenetics that uh, revolves around the histones and all the different histone modifications that, of course, also heavily change also during the aging process. Um, but there are currently, I think there's maybe one clock quite recently that tried to look at a histone modification, um, but this is quite limited. So, uh, so far, it's really mostly just DNA methylation. It brings me to a question that was on my mind. I don't know if any one of you thought how DNA damage affects mm -hmm. epigenetics. And there was this very interesting talk, of course, by David Sinclair, who has this model of induced, easily repairable double strand breaks, as he says. Do you think these would be inducing changes in just methylation size or all of chromatin? And do you think this kind of thing could be harmful? Um, I indeed think it's harmful. Um, I mean, especially after DNA damage, there's known to be a lot of uh, involvement of uh, several histone modifications. So the um, chromatin has to open up so that repair factors can come in and so on. Then uh, everything has to come back together and the hopeful original histone modification state is being reverted. Um, so there's indeed a lot that can also go wrong there. And also, um, it has been known that certain proteins, like Sinclair mentioned sirtuins, for example, also PRC2, are known to be directed towards DNA damage sites. And of course, then in theory, they also have to find back to their original sites. Whether that can explain everything, I'm not sure, but it could, of course, be one factor for aging process. Yeah, with regards to DNA damage and epigenetics, I, I mean, I assume that uh, many epigenetic changes. Uh, have the underlying cause of DNA damage and that's one of the things that has been not very much explored until now because of the limitations of technology to really investigate the comprehensive panel of somatic mutations in cells and how that affects the epigenetic landscape. Uh, but now with the new technologies it's getting uh, like easier and easier. With regards to David Sinclair's ICE-MICE model, I do not have any particular opinion on it because I have no expertise to try to you know really understand exactly at the technical level how it works so i'm not going to comment on that but um uh, i think that uh, yeah a, a big area of development is this you know relationship between dna damage and epigenetics and we don't really know to what extent this actually causes it so it's interesting that you mentioned somatic mutations affecting epigenetic marks i'm wondering if david here will disagree because it seems like your project works your project is more concerned with um, stochastic changes. Maybe this is the right moment where you can briefly introduce what you both focus on, and then we can go from there. Okay, of course. Um, so yeah, my current work um, mainly focused, as Camille mentioned, about stochastic changes, especially in the epigenome, but not limited to that. And what we basically saw is that if we look at all the aging clocks, especially first and second generation aging clocks, that they might eventually just track or measure how much more noisy or how much stochastic variation accumulates over a lifetime. So, because every um, CBG site, every DNA methylation site, um, in theory has to be maintained to be where it should be or what it should be. 
And of course, no maintenance is perfect. Um, there's always some small error rate. And just by this error rate, this is of course random or stochastic, over enough time, there will be errors introduced. And uh, these errors, of course, occur over a life. And we see that first and second gener uh, generation aging clocks are essentially correlated, almost linearly correlated with how much noise is in the data. Um, and we then even showed the reverse. So we can build an aging clock that can distinguish biological and chronological age by just using one single biological sample engine afterwards, just accumulating more and more stochastic variation. So this really seems to be sufficient and seems to be explaining how aging clocks actually work. Um, so that's the, the gist of it. It's not only limited to the emulation, but we also show that transcriptomic data might also behave the same. So it really seems to um, be something fundamental to the aging process. It was very interesting work when I saw it. I, I find it very cool. Um, does your work also somehow link with this, or is it totally different? Sorry. Uh, no, my work is actually quite uh, quite aligned with what David uh, is doing, and uh, we also focus on um, variable methylation. So I think it's quite important to distinguish stochasticity versus programmed um, changes in the epigenome because there is a big uh, debate at the moment in the aging field as to these two seemingly conflicting theories of aging as to whether aging is a programmed uh, phenomenon or whether it just is the result of stochastic changes that accumulate and that you know slowly that are not counterselected that haven't been counterselected by evolution because they, they happen after the reproductive period and i think that um, these two theories are can be reconciled entirely if you consider that some of the stochastic uh, some of the damage that is done to your cells and to your dna uh, is in a sense stochastic, but some of it comes from the expression of genes that are that are programmed, such as developmental genes, and it's the byproduct of those programmed genes that then causes damage on the DNA, like small metabolites, toxins, etc. So in some way, some of the damage that happens to the DNA is random, and some of the damage is actually located at specific loci on the epigenome, and this is probably why epigenetic clocks can be developed and can exist. Because to develop a clock that really predicts your chronological age by looking at the same sites for everyone, it means that some sites in the epigenome change in the exact same way for everybody. Some of those sites change um, at different speeds between different people because of the, their exposure to specific environmental factors or their genetic background that accelerate or slow down these stochastic damage uh, um, changes. Um, but I think that actually this uh, stochasticity and variab variable methylation between individuals is more likely to uh, explain why different people age at different rates, while the differential methylated uh, sites that uh, probably underlie many of the first generation clocks are more likely to, uh, because they are shared between everyone, they are unlikely to explain why people age at different rates. And I think focusing on the variability like what diverges between people is more interesting than focusing on those sites that change in the same way in everyone. Right, so you think the, the sites that do not change in everyone, they might be good at tracking age and the others might be better at tracking disease or yep. causally linked to aging. Yeah, precisely. And I think the question of causality is generally just very important with those epigenetic clocks and still unresolved. I mean, 
the field has matured, but we're still not entirely sure about the question of causality. What, what do you think? Are some of them, none of them causal? The epigenetic clock team? The side changes that they detect, the changes in methylation patterns. Um, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, currently, what I think is that first and also second generation aging clocks might be mostly not causal. Um, sites, because, I mean, and this we see with our um, simulations essentially, they really just seem to track how much noise accumulates. And what we think is that especially those sites accumulate the most noise um, that are least important. So if you have a more heavily maintained site, this site is most probably not that well correlated with aging, if it's just accumulating noise. And those sites that are least important, they are essentially allowed to accumulate noise over time. At least it is what we think. So I think um, if you really want to have a causal site, for example, if this site really uh, gets an error, if demethylated or methylated, um, this would be a problem for a cell. So I think this is probably not happening until maybe um, later in life. And um, for example, in Gladysha's um, uh, recent work where they tried to define a causal aging clock, this might actually be something that works um, to really find this, but just looking at pure correlations, um, I'm not sure how much uh, we can actually define causal sites. So we haven't tried um, this new um, causal aging clock yet, the code wasn't available so far, but I think that could actually be uh, a game changer. But it totally makes sense if you say that the least important sites will be the least well maintained and that's why they will show the most drift or accumulation of noise. What do you think if you get thousands or hundreds of thousands of these less important sites and you combine them together, could the effect still be harmful? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think even these not so important sites could of course have some downstream consequences. Um, so it could still be that there's some kind of harm in there. But I guess there should be more causal sites that if these really are affected, they should have a bigger effect. But that's uh, hard to answer at the moment. I have uh, another interesting question for you. Do you think causality is that important? Yes, I think um, I think causality is the one key issue to address. It, and it doesn't pertain to the field of epigenetic aging. It's pretty much every hallmark of aging. We need to really disentangle causality. The only issue with that is that usually causality is circular in the sense that some changes might actually um, cause aging and in return aging may be enhancing those changes further. So like, you know, these feedback loops that we know in biology and we need a systems biology approach probably to try to understand causality. But the work that Gladyshev has done recently by trying to disentangle the damaging versus adaptive changes in the epigenome is a fundamental step towards really um, looking at whether interventions can uh, can really benefit the you know a, a, an organism or not. And um, I think that uh, in humans, at least, Mendelian randomization techniques are the best tools we have so far. The only limitation of that is that it, you can only do that in blood so far because most of the big cohorts that allow you to implement this technique are blood cohorts. In other tissues, we just don't know what happens. And that's a, like a, a big thing to address, I think. I love Mendelian randomization and I think it's the way forward. But before we talk about this, maybe I can briefly disagree with you mm -hmm, a, little, sure. a little bit on the matter of causality. I think it depends on how you want to use the clock. 
So whether it's purely to track age and interventions or whether you want to identify, let's say, downstream genes. And there was this one talk at the ARDD with this beautiful metaphor. So imagine the non-causal sites are similar to, let's say, a wheelchair, an old person mm. in a wheelchair. And if you give them an intervention and the intervention causes their biology to change, so they don't need the wheelchair anymore, then this is a good sign, even if the wheelchair is not causal itself. But if you just take away the wheelchair, they won't be getting healthier, right? But in principle, you could still use these non-causal sites to track longevity interventions. What do you think? I think, I mean, the current clocks are, I think, fantastic and they are highly accurate in at least predicting chronological age. Some of them also decently accurate in biological age, as far as we can verify that. So I think um, if you just want to measure and potentially also uh, see whether an intervention has an effect, there could still be value, but one might have to be careful with interpretation. For example, also, I mean, there's this problem with cell type heterogeneity, for example, especially in some blocks. So that the question is, um, what are you really measuring? Is it really, is it the cell types that differ or is it um, the epigenome itself? So it really depends then on how you want to interpret and what you want to do with this data. But I think if you just want to measure biological age itself, it's still usable, I think, yes. Can you comment about cell heterogeneity? Because I think I saw it on your poster and it's always on my mind how the cell heterogeneity affect those clocks. Absolutely. So when it comes to um, age-related changes in cell types, so we know that during aging, a lot of tissues um, change in the, in the relative proportions of different cell types during aging. For example, in blood, we have a decrease in naive uh, T cells and an increase in memory T cells. Um, lots of other cell types uh, change. And um, some of the DNA methylation changes that are captured by the clocks actually reflect an age-related change in the relative proportions of those cell types. And um, it doesn't, I mean, at the end of the day, it really depends on what you want to use the clock for because it's not necessarily an issue that those clocks capture uh, changes in cell type proportions. If you want to understand the basic biology of aging, I don't think that looking at clocks is really the answer because clocks are fundamental tools in the clinic to actually get an outcome measure to see whether your intervention has worked or not. Um, if you want just to have a comprehensive view of which pathway, pathways are altered, in which cells, to what degree, then I think that going beyond clocks is really important because you, you don't want to limit yourself to just a certain number of sites. But there are definitely changes that are universal across all cell types that we know because uh, Steve Horvath developed a pan-tissue clock that works across all tissues. So it would be highly unlikely um, that these, this, this kind of clock that is pan-tissue would just reflect changes in cell type proportions because tissues change, I mean, differ very widely in the types of cells that they contain. That's a good point. If you use a clock that uses highly conserved sites across all tissues, that would mitigate that problem. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, and you mentioned clocks are a clinical tool, right? And we're trying to validate them using clinical studies. But the funny thing is sometimes it's circular. Are you using a randomized control trial to validate the clock or is the clock supposed to tell you that the intervention works? What do you think? At which stage are we and how, how should we approach this problem? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I think, I mean, there's no clear answer at the moment because in, in humans, at least, it is really hard to measure biological age. I mean, there are some people trying to measure it by looking at blood markers, for example, I mean, phenoage, grim age, they don't 
directly try to predict the chronological age, but more like this proxy for biological age. But of course, the, the question is, um, do we really know how well that works? I mean, yes, these are correlated with mortality and so on, but I still think um, there's still a lot of work to do, especially in humans, because we just don't know how old they are. And of course, I mean, no studies go further into detail there, but it could of course be that all the different organs age at completely different speeds. So it's really hard to really say, is it uh, is not just your blood this age or is it your whole body this age? And I think um, at the moment it's quite difficult to assess that, especially in humans. Also, as you say, it's often <coughs> blood. We have problems assessing other clocks in people because no one wants to give a liver biopsy. <laughs> I saw people interested in working with uh, saliva samples. I think we have to yeah, do, do some work on that front as well to sample other tissues for clinical studies because right now it's often limited to blood. You know, at the same time, if you want to implement it in the clinic, it has to be a non-invasive you know, kind of sampling because you want to be able to apply it to patients who are not able to give very precious invasive samples. So it makes sense to look at blood if you want to implement it in the clinic. Actually, does anyone know how much blood is needed? Is it like a very small amount? You're asking bioinformaticians. <laughs> we're all basic, more basic researchers here, but now that you mentioned it, that was an interesting question. Because people, they don't even want to give blood if it's too much, so even that can be an issue. It adds to the complexity of studies and also the cost of measuring these these aging clocks. I think they're in the hundreds of dollars, right, still? Well, I think the, the, this is going to come down very quickly over, over the years. You see how like genome sequencing has come down in cost. So I don't I think it's only a matter of time that, you know, epigenetic uh, you know, technologies are going to become very cheap. So I don't think it's so, it's really an issue, maybe at the moment, but in the near future, probably not. You're right, perhaps economies of scale will drive down the prices when all the biohackers start measuring their own <laughs> epigenetic ages. Yeah, and we were mentioning validation with controlled trials, and this is one way. The other one is to do uh, Mendelian randomization. And there is, of course, this beautiful work by, by the Gladyshev group trying to identify causal sites using these very advanced Mendelian randomization techniques without going too much into detail on um, what do you think about it? I think we briefly mentioned it already. I think it's probably the way or one of the ways forward to really see whether we can identify causal sites in the epigenome. I'm not an expert in Mendelian um, in randomization, but um, I think the work that they have done looks really solid. And um, I think yeah, if these works work as uh, they are um, proposed, I think it could be really exciting. Do you think their clock would be affected by noise as well if you add noise to the system, that adaptive clock? That's a good point. I would really like to try that out. Um, I would like to see a complete flat line so that they are not measuring noise at all. That would be really uh, fascinating to see. And then we maybe have an even stronger point that these are actual causal and not just measuring noise, but there might be something more to it. Yeah, I was really surprised with how almost every clock can be increased by adding noise, even Grimage, which is not, which was not trained on age per se. I found this pretty cool when I read your paper. And yeah, Mendelian randomization, without going into detail, is a super interesting technique. It is kind of between controlled trials and observational studies. It's often considered 
way stronger than observational studies. And basically the idea is to use genetic tools to get a genetic prediction of a certain variable. Let's say this could be blood iron, it could be cholesterol, or it could be a clock, a clock out, uh, readout. So that would be the classical way of running Mendelian randomization. And I was actually looking through Google Scholar to see if anyone has done it. People apparently did it for cancer, showing that genetically proxied Rimage or some other clocks, they're associated with some cancers, but not consistently. And no one did it for lifespan yet. I think that will be next step of validation. Yeah, I think that's, um, I agree with you that in humans, Mendelian randomization is probably the best tool we have so far to disentangle cause and consequence. Um, because let's face it, when you start going at the functional level in cell lines, animal models, you can only draw so many conclusions. And if you want to do really the hard work of doing epigenome editing in cells, you can only alter one side at a time. So you don't have a comprehensive view of, you know, what, what is the cumulative, uh, you know, consequence of all those changes at once on the functionality of a cell. And uh, one of the things I want to insist on is that epigenetic clocks fundamentally are biased by the kinds of training data you feed them. And this is very important because uh, Grimage and any other clock that is trained to um, detect bio, I mean, to predict biological age are inherently um, biased by the kinds of uh, cohorts that are fed into the algorithm. And this is very important because now we think many different clocks capture many different aspects of aging, probably because of this bias in training data if we could feed the algorithm the entirety of humankind, that would be a different story. We would have a very accurate measurement of biological age, but um, the different clocks probably capture very different aspects of biological age. And that's uh, an important point to make that probably at this stage, not one better clock and it is biased by the training set. Maybe also to add to that, um, because it's a really important point. Um, I think currently we are really limited to also certain ethnicities and the data is really not diverse mm -hmm. enough. So there's really some parts of the world we just have no, or almost no data. And I think that's really a problem and people should really try to get more cohorts also in these underrepresented um, populations. It's very true. So you did a lot of systematic analysis, pooling of different data sets. Did you see any patterns that some um, people or groups are underrepresented or it doesn't work as well in these groups? Well, what well do you think? Uh, I did the big data mining trying to get my hands on all the DNA methylation profiles I could. And the bottom line is for the vast majority of tissues, uh, over 90% of the samples are from Caucasian descent. Of course, uh, the, the male-female ratio is actually quite good. I expected uh, in some tissues, um, there are more males than females, like in muscle. In brain, it's uh, pretty evenly represented, but when it comes to ethnicity, I completely agree with David. We have an uh, yeah, overrepresentation of uh, Caucasians and very few of like other ethnicities. So I just cannot answer that question because I just don't have the statistical power to really compare the different groups. There is just so few. Um, yeah. yeah. So it seems we have developed pan-mammalian clocks, but we have not developed yet pan-human clocks. No, no, that's very true. That, that, that's a very accurate way of saying this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the clocks we use in the clinic, they use a lot of sites and some of them might not be conserved between different ethnicities. Uh, I think, well, they are, yeah. Like methylation levels might differ. Yeah, uh, the methylation, yeah. When you look just at the factors that shape your epigenome the most, by far, when you when you conduct an analysis, the three factors that matter most 
are age, sex, and ethnicity. These three things shape your epigenome enormously. Then other things like disease, BMI, they influence your epigenome a little bit. But by far, you know, ethnicity is a very big contributor to differences in methylation between people. Talking about the shape of the epigenome, there is something that I found puzzling. I saw this in several talks and several papers. So you have a clock that predicts a biological age, but some of these clocks seem very sensitive to environmental stressors, smoking, high fat diet, even lack of sleep. I don't think, you know, sleeping one day less makes you really age five years faster. So how will you interpret this variability of current clocks? That's a really good question. I'm not sure whether I have a perfect answer to that. Um, first of all, of course, there's some variability in there because it's hard to, even if you sample the same person twice on the same day, there will be differences just technically. But it's a good question on why, if you just have some kind of stress, you sometimes really see decently big effects. Um, I mean, one argument that some people made, that I have heard at least, is that um, some of these clocks might measure partially at least uh, inflammation. So if you have something that leads to inflammation, then it could be that this potentially for a certain amount of time increases your age. And once the inflammation goes away, it decreases again. But um, otherwise, I'm not sure actually. It's a good question. I'm wondering, I'm trying to link it with your work. So could it be that the noise is temporarily increased and then there are adaptive mechanisms which decrease the noise of the system? This is also something that um, I was wondering because in theory, once the noise is in the system, it should be really hard to, almost impossible to get out again because you don't know anymore what was correct um, unless you do something like reprogramming that shouldn't happen then. Um, so at the moment, I wonder whether there's something like a selection process that maybe these cells then, um, especially for example in blood, whether you um, have those cells drive inflammation or that are affected by inflammation maybe just die off. Um, but this is something that I'm also wondering. I'm not sure how to answer that properly at the moment. Yeah, I agree uh, very much when I remember seeing Vadim Gladyshev's work showing that the transient uh, infection increased the biological age that came back to normal after the infection was, uh, you know, went away. It really begs the question as to what the clocks really are, are measuring and whether we want to use these kinds of clocks as clinical tools to you know, assess the effect of certain uh, rejuvenation therapies. Um, and uh, as David mentioned, inflammation seems to be this like um, pan hallmark of aging that is really driving a lot of the, uh, uh, of the aging of the different tissues. And um, I think that's why I'm, it's not that I'm skeptical about clocks, but I think we need to go beyond them and really capture the comprehensive uh, panel of what's happening in the epigenome to really just make sure that we are measuring the right thing for the right purpose. Um, but of course, I think that one of the things that has been done, for example, in the field of personalized nutrition that has not been done in epigenetic aging at the moment, which is to assess in one given person over the course of one day or one week, how does that person's biological age vary between the morning, the evening, after a meal, after an infection? We would like this kind of measurement ideally to be robust against these tiny variations in a person's you know, uh, daily activities to make sure that we have a measurement that is robust within a given person if we really want to uh, implement it. You raise a lot of very interesting points. Let me start with the robustness argument. I also had this on my mind. Imagine you could train a clock that 
both predicts age and is robust day-to-day to mild stressors. Maybe this will be better, maybe not, but it's worth considering. And also, of course, we should look at the whole epigenome, but a lot of people don't realize it's way harder, of course, than just methylation sets because the combinatorial variability is almost infinite of histones, so it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. That's the next step to try and look at this. I have a question for you, um, David. So, again, about the, the reversibility of clocks and the stochastic nature and how they respond to stresses, right? Is your model consistent with the idea that current clocks measure sort of adaptive changes and there is a stochastic component on top of it? So the stochastic component would be hard to revert, but the other one might be flexible in a way? That's a good question. Um, I don't think we can exclude any adaptive responses at the moment. We just see that there is a strong stochastic component, but it could very well be that these clocks additionally also have some adaptive um, uh, measurement so that they also additionally measure something else. And it could of course also be that um, this is then also what is measuring these um, differences after, for example, uh, environmental stress, that this is actually then what's measured and the stochastic component maybe just stays the same. That's true. That is sort of my intuition also after reading the recent Gladyshev paper with this adaptive clock. And he uses a very interesting Mendelian randomization approach, which was different from the thing that I envisioned. So he uses Mendelian randomization to predict changes on the site level. And then in a way he finds that causal sites are not enriched in any of the clocks. Mm -hmm. So this is amazing. But also what I think, if you look at so many sites, and then he, I think he tries to pick the ones that are most significant, right? So if each site was having a small but causal contribution, as in causal as in bad for aging, his, his approach might be able to miss it because none of them would reach significance. At least um, that's my interpretation. I don't know. That's a good point. I think that it could very well be. Um, I think it's a really fantastic start. Um, and I think there will be a lot of follow-up papers that maybe try to actually even further improve this to get even better causal clocks, I think, yeah. No, very true. Yeah, because the methods they use are amazing and it's all enabled by the deciphering of the human genome. That's why we're getting the randomization to begin with. So there's, there are sites, we call them SMPs, that can vary from human to human. And this site can affect methylation at another site which is close by and it doesn't have to be like totally next to it and you can have thousands hundreds of thousands of these and then you can look how they predict let's say lifespan so it's of course a very powerful approach but as you know with bioinformatics so much can go wrong if you have just a tiny issue with your assumptions or you make a tiny mistake have you seen on the first day this talk from the clinician showing different clocks and how they changed in response to treatment and how variable they were in a single patient Yes, I think this is also a problem, potential problem in the aging clock field at the moment, because often it seems like these clocks do not perfectly agree with each other, so they might capture different things. Um, and here sometimes it is also problematic if people just pick a certain clock to measure, because there is this variability. So I think if people want to use clocks in their publications, they should probably use as many as they can. Um, because the data should be there, and as long as they can use the clocks, they should also report all of them, just because there's so much variability, uh, potentially. And I think it's then not good to just 
show one, even if it works or not works, just to show really everything to see whether there's a consistent effect. Yeah, that really goes uh, uh, what the work we're trying to do by, by uh, as I mentioned, going beyond clocks and looking at every change in the genome. Because then once we have a comprehensive, thanks to Mendelian randomization, once we have a comprehensive list of all the CPG sites that are causal in aging, why try to boil them down into one single measure? You can just have an intervention and see whether at site one, at site two, at site 10, this intervention has actually, you know, increased or decreased the methylation in a direction that is consistent with an adaptive mechanism or a detriment to aging. And um, yeah, th there's no reason to focus, I mean, to try to boil everything down into one single measure that might actually give you uh, a wrong answer to the question you're trying to ask. I don't have a strong opinion on this, but it's very interesting. I think boiling it down to a single number is, of course, makes it easier, simpler for people to comprehend. That's why they like doing it, but it might not be the optimal approach. And I'm wondering, given there are so many clocks and I'm a bit more familiar with your work, David, so I'm going to ask you, you worked on transcriptomic clocks, epigenetic clocks. What would be the advantage of each approach? Do you think there will be the ultimate clock at some point? Yeah, that's um, also an important point, I think. I, I would guess that every single omics clock could potentially measure a different aspect of aging. Of course, there are different hierarchies, so the inflation is one hierarchy up, um, then there's transcription and uh, proteomics is further downstream. Um, and I think, I mean, both have merits and, um, and maybe problems. In DNA methylation, um, at least with these arrays, they are reasonably cheap to do, they are highly accurate. Transcriptomic clocks are usually not that accurate, there's much more variability in there. Um, so they are a bit harder to work with, I would say. Um, but they also capture a completely different aspect. And I mean, one benefit of transcriptomic clocks is that you can then also use the transcriptomic samples, of course, for other analysis. With DNA methylation, of course, there are also other analysis possible, but the other interpretation is often harder. Because in transcriptomics, we are really we are looking at single genes, and then it's really much more easy to interpret the data. And I think that is one advantage of uh, advantage of transcriptomics or also proteomic clocks. Yeah, and I would actually add to that that a lot of people say that proteomic clocks are closer to the phenotype than you know the clocks that are built uh, at more fundamental levels of hallmarks of aging. And this is probably true because even if you have a change in the epigenome at a specific locus, it doesn't mean that it's going to actually ch functionally change your proteins and the way your organs work. So proteomic clocks and proteomics in general, I think, show a lot of promise to get as close as possible to the biological age of different organs, as there was a talk at ARDD about the different proteomic clocks for different organs. I think mm -hmm. this is very promising. I love proteomics and I always thought aging researchers should use it more, both comparing across species and also um, to derive clocks and similar things. Definitely. But I think it's sufficiently more challenging to transcriptomics that few labs are using it. I think currently the technical limitations are still not too small, let's say. So I think once really there's a more standard way and all different labs adapt to that, I think that would really take off. Yeah, especially now that um, similar to the Gene Expression Omnibus platform and Array Express, there is Proteome Exchange, which is a platform where people can uh, upload their proteomics data open access. This really is a promising tool to develop proteomic clocks using many, many different data sets across many different cohorts. I think this is a, this is a future.
David will next show how stochastic changes impact proteomic clocks. <laughs> cool. really interesting. <laughs> you got a lot of work on your plate. <laughs> I have a slightly unrelated question. So with epigenetics, people often talk about you know, clocks prove somehow that aging is programmed or program-like. Do you both have any opinion on this? Yeah, I think I, I, I gave some answer like earlier today about this like seemingly conflicting theories of program versus stochastic uh, aging theories. And I think um, as Vadim Gladyshev has also a preprint on epigenetic aging at the single cell level and showing how uh, there are many uh, types of changes to the epigenome that are inherently random they happen at random sites but the the reason why these damages are happening to the epigenome sometimes comes from byproducts of genes that are programmed to be expressed at a certain time at a certain you know in a certain cell so in a sense some of the changes that you see come from genes that have been uh, from specific groups of genes so some of these changes happen at the same locus for everyone at the same, in the same manner so it's i think what we call quasi-programmed. Quasi this is the best theory we have at the moment. But you, you have both. It's not like the two theories are completely unrelated. You have like yeah, both types of changes. Maybe uh, to add to that, I think some people argue that aging is a consequence of development, for example. And here, maybe it's just the wording, but I not, don't completely agree with that. Of course, development has a role and we see that organisms that have a longer development also live longer. Um, this is, of course, also evolutionary driven because if you need more time to reach reproduction, you, of course, need better maintenance and so on. And this maintenance also, of course, then keeps on going after production uh, as possible. And I think it's then not a consequence of development itself, but it's more, let's say, a byproduct of this maintenance. So if you need a certain time to reach reproduction, you need a certain um, maintenance level. And this then just keeps on going. And if you have better maintenance, you, of course, accrue less potential errors uh, throughout your life. And this is then, um, of course, organisms that have better maintenance live longer. But this is then, I don't think at least, a consequence of development itself it's just a byproduct of this imperfect maintenance and just some species have better maintenance than others. But maybe that's just uh, semantics. It is. It might be that we all agree. We just use slightly different words to talk about it. Mm. I, I do believe we know for sure that there are modules of genes, sometimes driven even by a single transcription factor that have important effects on maintenance of, of, of DNA stability or on the on growth trajectories, maybe the growth hormone pathway is one such famous example. And then you can ask yourself if you have a mutation in this pathway and it decelerates aging in mice and in so many other models, is this evidence for that growth hormone programs aging, that this pathway programs aging or not, or is it just a semantic question? But we know there are single gene mutations that seem to slow aging. And we also know that epigenetic reprogramming might also slow aging. I'm wondering uh, your opinion. So since you have more expertise in this field, when I first read about epigenetic A reprogramming, I did not think it's going to work. It seems like so far out there. What were your initial views on this matter? Oh God, um, <laughs> I, I am so far from having a very, uh, very strong opinion on this because reprogramming is not my field of expertise. 
And uh, I was just, uh, you know, I got the information as the publications came in from different labs showing, you know, the epigenetic reprogramming with uh, the OSKM factors. Um, so I'm probably going to hand that to David because I do not have a specific opinion on that. I, as well, was really skeptical um, because, I mean, now there are uh, publications that um, show that it might actually really work, but um, I think it will be really hard to program the cells back to a stage where it's beneficial and not so much back that they really forget what cell type they are. And I think in theory, every single cell type might be slightly different. So you, of course, I can't prove that at the moment, but I could imagine that you need a specific amount of this OSKM, for example, to reprogram these cells back to a stage where they are just beneficial. So I think it could be really tricky. Um, of course, it could be that every single cell works the same, but I would assume that's highly unlikely. Um, but I mean, there are now um, really cool publications coming out that show that there is actually life spontaneous extension um, if you use uh, it correctly. So um, maybe I'm too skeptical, but um, yeah, I guess we will see it in the future. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, I just want to add a point to that, that uh, Vadim Gladyshev pointed, uh, uh, pointed out that when you reprogram a cell using epigenetic reprogramming, not to the stage that they are uh, you know, pluripotent stem cells, but just that they are a bit younger, um, some of the adaptive changes that have happened during the life of the cell when it became differentiated actually remain there in the sense that like this reprogramming doesn't put the cell back the way it was before it differentiated, but maybe actually gets, you know, you get a cell that uh, whose detrimental changes in the epigenome have been sort of quote unquote erased, but that has kept the adaptive changes that are actually beneficial for the cell. So in a way, the reprogramming might be even better than a young cell because you have actually already, you have kept you know, those good changes that happened during the cell as it aged, and you've only removed those changes that were detrimental. And I think that's very, very interesting because it begs the question as to exactly which parts of the cell program are affected by the OSKM factors. And I think Gladyshev showed it in the latest uh, adaptive versus detrimental, uh, you know, damage clocks where the adaptage actually increased after reprogramming. So it, the cell was actually still adaptive, you know. But I agree. I think it's really exciting and I'm really looking forward to the mm. publications in the next, next years. <laughs> Indeed. So since we do not really know the components of each clocks, we just can say, or so far we could say that reprogramming reverses the clock ages, but we do not know where these reversals come from, whether certain genes are maintained, whether just genes with high levels of noise are erased and they're not very important so maybe this is not harmful like we, we know so little about it and sometimes it was on my mind though if there is epigenetic reversal and then you get re-establishment of proper marks where is the magical backup copy like where does this information come from this is something that always escaped my understanding i think also um thomas duffields and uh, pedro's recent work um where they try to build a theory of aging uh, that goes into that lines is quite interesting here um, because I mean, in theory, you need a backup copy or a really well constructed algorithm that exactly knows at every single site what there should be. And I think, I mean, also during reproduction, there is some kind of program, right? There must be a program that knows exactly, at least for the important sites, what there should be. 
And I assume that reprogramming then really does something at least similar to that so that it knows exactly what to put where. I think that's quite exciting. It's, it's very interesting. And if I may speculate some more, so I guess the idea is that you reset some of the sites and then during development, some of them are reestablished. So that made sense so far, but I always thought you may have to recapitulate development as, as a whole to properly reset some of these sites through, let's say, interaction with the placenta or through, you know, all the process that happened during development, I'm amazed that it actually seems to work as partial reprogramming. And then the other cool question is whether there is um, selection, right? What, what role does selection play when do cells die after reprogramming? Mm -hmm. How many cells die during development? And maybe you have like a form of selection against old cells as well. And how much of the effect is explained by this? Very true, yeah. Yeah, very true. I really do not know. Good question. All right. Let's, before we delve into the beautiful naked Morat, I want to ask both of you, um, what are you working on next? What do you want to do? So we are trying to build a multi-tissue atlas of epigenetic aging in humans to have a comprehensive view of which DNA methylation sites change to what degree, in which organ, which ones are universal, which ones are tissue specific, and which ones increase in variance and which ones do not. That's the, we are trying to build this atlas that will be an online platform that people can browse to really check their favorite gene, their favorite tissue, to see what's happening. Maybe I can just add a question here. So do you have a strong opinion on the aging rate of different organs? Do you think they age a similar or different rate? Do we know? So I don't have a strong opinion yet because I haven't finished the analysis, but I do see very striking differences between different tissues that have different proliferative capacities, tissues that proliferate a lot versus tissues that barely uh, you know, that, that barely proliferates, such as, you know, muscle. So I think a lot of the epigenetic changes might be related to proliferative capacity. And in the, we see very interesting things happening in the brain, but these are, this is just preliminary data. And we just don't know. I mean, I don't know whether, um, you know, I, I need to check the reason why the brain seems to behave so differently from other tissues at the moment. Right. So this was with the variable, variable methylated sites that they're behave differently in the brain than in other tissues. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to find out. Do you look, so the brain samples, are they whole brain, a certain region, cortex, where do they come from? So in the database we have, we have about 35 data sets from many different brain regions that span uh, like pretty much every brain region you can think of, the cerebellum, the frontal cortex, etc. Um, and these brain tissues are post-mortem samples and usually from uh, older or very old individuals. And the analysis we conduct, um, in the analysis we conduct, what changes we see are universal across different brain regions because we meta-analyze everything across the different brain regions. So the patterns we identify that are robust in the different brain regions are sort of universal in that sense. But we have many different brain regions. All right, David, what are your next projects? For me, actually, um, it goes away a bit from the aging block field itself. So what we currently think, I mean, with this stochastic idea of aging, that there's, of course, um, a large proportion that might be explained by, for example, DNA damage or genome instability that then, of course, affects almost everything downstream. 
And currently, um, my interest shifts a bit into this direction so that we really want to understand what um, happens during genome instability and is there something um, that we can figure out there also across species so to really look at different species with different genome instability inducers like of course aging is one, uh, maybe UV irradiation, maybe um, uh, cisplatin for example and to really see is there something in common and can we learn something there also for the aging process um, and I think I will focus more on, on data analysis on that part for the next years. Very promising, yeah. So going back to the basic science of mm. DNA damage and epigenetics. Exactly, essentially, yeah. Well, I think the, the Schumacher lab has shown that you can find amazing things using C. elegans and doing basic science in this. I would not have also expected the findings on the dream complex and DNA repair that you could identify druggable targets that may promote DNA repair in humans based on C. elegans. So. They're always surprises. Yeah. So same for me as someone who works exclusively in humans. I'm always amazed to see that you can really get interesting results from a little worm. I think especially this DNA repair field in C. elegans, I think that's really um, well conserved. And I think there's really a lot of insights that can still be gathered, even for humans. I have two questions now that you mentioned it, because I made some notes. So question number one is, how does methylation change with C. elegans? I recall they don't have much of any CPG methylation. That's first the question. And the second is, how does DNA damage affect methylation? Because I read contradicting things in this matter. Um, so to your first question, yes, in worms we don't have any uh, CPG methylation, so just not existent. We of course do have all the other histone modifications and these also heavily change over the time course of uh, the worm. And regarding your second question regarding DNA damage, um, I mean, of course, in the worm, since we don't have CBG sites, there's of course no change. Um, but the histone modifications are actually also um, heavily affected by that. So we see, for example, um, uh, recent work also from our lab that uh, the H3K4 dimethylation is especially important to basically restart uh, protein biosynthesis again after the DNA damage has been repaired, for example. So there are really a different steps. So once the DNA damage um, affects the worm, then during repair, and also even after repair with the dimethylation, there are really different um, kind of changes in the epigenome that need to take place. I recall there were some controversial papers in C. elegans um, claiming whether they have methylation or not, but you would say current consensus is towers, they don't really have CPG methylation. Um, CPG, the CPG methylation, I don't think there is any. Um, there are some reports arguing that there might be um, this um, adenosine methylation, but um, I'm not sure how many papers there are and how robust the data is actually. Okay, so there was a very cool question that came to my mind because I saw a recent publication. I don't know if you have any opinion on this. So the naked morad is considered to age slower and it does not show demographic aging. So some people think it's almost negligibly senescent. But then apparently you can construct a clock which perfectly tracks naked morad aging. What is your interpretation of this? Um, I mean, I think the naked morad should still age, just we don't probably now the maximum lifespan yet. I guess it ages slower than we would expect. And it probably has really well, uh, uh, 
really good and cancer, um, anti-cancer mechanisms or maintenance mechanisms. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether you have any mm. on that. I guess that the reason why the reason why you can still get a clock for the naked mole rat probably illustrates how closely uh, epigenetic aging is linked to development and reproductive age. And I think that these these uh, these things are universal across many different types of organisms. So the tight link to development, I think, means that you can definitely track the um, the aging, quote unquote, or more, or more like the development of an organism using epigenetic clocks. Then, when it comes to the actual biology of the naked mole rat and the maximum lifespan, and uh, you know what sort of health span naked mole rat has, I have no opinion whatsoever because I'm not a specialist of that. Um, maybe just to add to that, maybe that goes also back to these: are the aging clocks causative or not? I mean, if the clocks are not causative and they just track, for example, as we show noise or stochastic variation later, then it could of course be that what we measure in the naked mole rat is also just the background noise that might actually not be important for the aging process of the naked morot and those sites that actually would be causative are just not being measured as was also be. But you're not surprised that it's measurable, that you can construct a clock? This I wouldn't be surprised, especially if it's not causative. I mean, if it's just correlative, I mean, every organism should accumulate some kind of stochastic variation. Um, so if it's really just correlative, I think it should work, yeah. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm bringing up the morot because it's such an interesting organism. And in many ways, it has this approach to aging that it accumulates a lot of damage, but the damage, it handles it very well and it does not result in downstream effects. So it has some sort of, let's say, DNA modifications, but it does not seem to accumulate a lot of DNA mutations. Maybe here it is again a case of it does accumulate some sort of epigenetic noise, but mm -hmm. it is really good at handling it for some reason. Yeah, that could be really yeah. Okay, so we briefly talked about single cell clocks and about the contribution of, of different cell populations. So remind me again, you think in blood it either doesn't matter or you're able to correct for cell compositional effects? Uh, in my analysis, yes, we, we could adjust for the age-related changes in uh, the different proportions of blood cell types, but we can also do that with other organs and their specific cell types. And there are some changes that are due to these uh, cell type changes compositions, but some changes are intrinsic to the cells and are actually universal. So you've got both kinds of changes. Yeah. Do you think it would be useful to me to analyze single cell clocks? I'm assuming we don't have much data yet in humans to look um, at this. That's a good question. I would need to, we would, the person who's done that the most is Vadim Gladyshev, I believe. And I do not know whether he has some, a lot of data but he has a very interesting theoretical paper in, on BioArchive, which is the epigenetic aging from the single cell perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Maybe just to add to that, I think currently also single cells is really challenging because there's this coverage problem. And sometimes if you just don't see a signal, it doesn't really say that there is really nothing. Maybe you couldn't just measure it. So it really depends on how good the technique is and whether you really then can use that. Or at least then you need to incorporate this technical bias that you potentially also measure. Yeah, that's true. And uh, the single cell epigenetic clock that Gladyshev's uh, lab developed is a, inherently a probabilistic model. It, is, it doesn't measure every single site on the epigenome. It's, uh, it infers the probability that a site is methylated or not yeah. in a single cell. So it's uh, very yeah, different. Yeah, single cell approaches are very difficult, but we're 
getting closer to making the techniques work. I'm reminded of some beautiful papers. I think it was with Vera Gorbanova looking at mutation rates in single cells and showing that naked morals age much slower or accumulate fewer mutations than mice. So mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of promise in these techniques in epigenetics as well. What do you think we could learn? Like, how would you use if you had access to perfect single cell epigenetic clock? What would you do with it? If single cell um, techniques really were able to capture that, it would be really fascinating because then we could really try to understand what single cell resets are doing. Because currently, we essentially can just look at bulk. So we can just say this CVG site is to 40% methylated in bulk. So 40% of your cells are methylated and the rest is not methylated. And then it's, of course, way harder to interpret that. Um, so I think that could be really interesting, especially if you could then link that also, for example, to single cell RNA sequencing or something further downstream to see whether this then has an actual effect on, for example, transcripts. But I guess that's still a long way to go. Yeah, one of the things that I would love to see using this technology is to disentangle the stochastic versus programmed debate we had, where if you had a pool of, let's say, 100 cells of the same type, then you, you, could, you could really check whether uh, a specific locus changes in the same way in those 100 cells, and some changes happen only randomly at specific loci, uh, you know, across the different cells. So I think it would really allow us to map which regions of the epigenome uh, are programmed to age at the epigenetic level in a certain way that is universal across the different cells and which ones are completely stochastic. Mm. I think that would be a really great advance. Completely agree. Yeah, there are a lot of cool applications of single cell techniques. <clears throat> As you mentioned, one of the issues is that we look at bulk methylation um, marks. I recall a very interesting talk recently, probably by Vadim, showing that when you do, when you measure reprogramming on the single cell level at a in vivo type of reprogramming during development, that placental tissues show no or, few, or less age reversal than the actual embryonic tissues, which is fascinating and it makes sense because you expect that their rejuvenation is necessary for the embryo to reset the germline. So there are a lot of creative uses, I think, for this kind of technique. Now let's speculate a little bit. If I gave you one million dollars, what kind of project would you do that is slightly out there? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, you can take the lead. Okay, I can take the lead. If I had a million, uh, million dollars... Um, oh. Well, if it's just a matter of money, um, yeah, I would keep on building the atlas that I'm currently doing and looking specifically at uh, single cell and interventions to see um, exactly how the interventions that we are currently trying to implement affect epigenetic aging across different organs. Um, I, want, I would like to focus specifically on humans and uh, to really do, you know, answer all these big questions. But nothing more than what, I'm, you know, what we are currently doing at the moment. It's just that it, it takes a lot of time, technological developments and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of computational biology to answer these questions. So you love your current work, as I can see. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm reminded that you also did a lot of work on exercise, right? Because you just mentioned interventions. Can you um, tell me again, what are the findings? How did exercise actually affect epigenetic age? So when it comes to, cells. yeah, uh, we looked specifically at the effect of exercise on the aging epigenome of skeletal muscle. We didn't look at all tissues, 
but specifically in muscle we saw that um, I would say that, yeah the vast majority uh, of the of the DNA methylation sites that change in average methylation levels, so hyper or hypomethylated, um, changed in the opposite direction after exercise training. And this was a meta-analysis of many different cohorts of humans uh, of different types of exercise altogether. Um, the thing is, once again, this paper did not assess causality. We just saw that you know the correlation of you know age-related change that would that was reversed after exercise training. So, and some of the changes that happened during aging in muscle were further enhanced by exercise. Once again, coming back to potentially the uh, adaptive versus detrimental theory. Um, so, the causality is one big issue we we would like to solve. Uh, in muscle, it's not possible to solve yet, but in the future, probably. But you did evaluate controlled trials of exercise in this Absolutely, case. yeah, yeah, human uh, exercise trials, yeah. Yeah, I, I love exercise and I think it's very important to maintain health and I do, however, have a controversial opinion that I want to tell you and then, and then you can tell me whether I'm crazy or not. So, since I'm more of a mouse researcher, I noticed that exercise does not work very well to extend mouse lifespan compared to things like rapamycin and caloric restriction. Does this mean we should fund way more studies and funnel more money into rapamycin research? Do you think like there's an imbalance here? I think that it uh, depends on what you want to focus. I agree with you that exercise does not increase necessarily your lifespan, but it greatly enhances your health span. And at the end of the day, this is what we want to focus on. Um, I think that increasing the number of years you spend in good health is much more important than increasing your total lifespan, although it is also important. So I think that, um, and when it comes to exercise, let's be honest, we already know that exercise is good for you across many different organ systems, you know, whether it's for your brain, your, your muscle, your fat, your liver, everything. The big question with exercise is how do we implement it at the population level? And this is another story. This is something that has to do with, you know, how do you implement public policy to encourage people to exercise? Uh, when it comes to the drugs, the drugs are a much different story because then it's, you know, it has to go with the, the healthcare sector and how do you implement that? But I'm not a specialist of this. Yeah, the even harder question is can we get exercise in a pill? Like, yeah. maybe we can get caloric restriction in a pill because now we have semaglutide, so maybe mm -hmm. one day we'll have exercise in a pill. And for that, we definitely need basic research to understand exercise better. All right, that was just a brief detour here. Uh, what would you do with a lot of money? So if money wouldn't play a role, I think what would be really important in order to move the aging field forward is really longitudinal studies and really measure as much data from the same person also as possible to really try to validate also the current clocks, maybe also develop uh, new clocks and to really see um, whether it's actually um, what we have so far usable or not. So I think currently, I mean, there are a few longitudinal studies, but it's still really limited, probably due to money constraints. And I think that will be really important to move forward, um, at least first of all, maybe in healthy persons, um, but then of course also maybe with different diseases or um, different uh, treatments, drug treatments and so on. So I think that would be uh, really valuable for the whole aging field, but especially also for the aging clock field. Right, so I think that's an important point. So currently, the way clocks are constructed, they have, they're based on individuals of different ages and for each of those individuals, you just have a single measurement. You never track how they change within an individual, rarely. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's an important shortcoming. Okay. So 
this is what um, you would like to do or what you would like to see more research on. I have another question about longevity research in general because there are different opinions when you go to conferences, for example, in messaging, when we talk to the public. Should we focus on lifespan, healthspan, both? Now, what do you think, David? Yeah, that's an important point. And I think also currently um, it's probably not that well done because a lot of people I talk to um, don't understand the point uh, of aging research or also don't understand the point of extending lifespan, for example, because I guess so far during the whole uh, history of humanity, people considered getting old but getting sick and dying. And of course, we want to kind of uncouple that and extend healthspan as much as possible. But of course, ideally, we want to extend also lifespan. But if you just expand lifespan without healthspan, that's of course almost meaningless. So we should really um, try to get the point maybe across that we don't want to just extend maximum lifespan, but while getting sick, but to really say, okay, we just don't want to get sick, um, don't want our loved ones to get sick and to die. And I think uh, currently, I'm not sure how well that is communicated. And I think we should maybe think of how to better do this. It's just very challenging, I think, because as you said, the connection between aging and disease is so ingrained in the minds of people that when you ask them, let's say, would you like to have a superpower and fly? They would say yes. They will suspend their disbelief. But whenever I ask a person, how long would you like to live? I do not stipulate that they will be sick, right? But they always assume they will be sick and they will never give you a high number because they assume they will get sick. So maybe if people could live a healthy life, maybe do you think they would like to live hundreds of years? I don't know. It highly depends on the what people's mental priorities are. Some people deeply care about the planet, the environment and human beings in general. And they think it's a selfish decision to want to live forever, even if you're in good health. And they think that dying is part of the life cycle and everything. But I think that the, the one thing that could help uh, people understand that the aging research is beneficial to society is to compare what we're doing to, let's say, a researcher who tries to fight cancer, who tries to fight cardiovascular disease. We are all very happy to fund these types of research because it's like, oh yeah, you know, kill cancer, great. And, and I'm like, I'm not fundamentally doing something that different from an oncologist because we want to increase health span across many different diseases. So an oncologist inherently increases lifespan. If you think about it, it increases health span by trying to stave off cancer. And I'm just trying to do that across different diseases. So by trying to reframe like the goal of aging research towards like, you know, uh, essentially what other uh, researchers are doing across many different chronic diseases, it would help people understand the value of what we're doing. On the other hand, I worry this might dilute the message in a way because the message of at least the geroscience hypothesis and the longevity dividend without sounding arrogant is that we can provide more than the other disciplines because all age-related diseases are linked. And if we could slow them by a tiny bit, right, this would be better than studying cancer individually, which we do have to do, right? But right now we're one of the most underfunded fields in the world. And I feel like we should communicate like a unique value proposition. That's something that is also on my mind. Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah, I mean, this is actually even eventually what convinced me to really focus on aging. It's like the uh, this huge value across many different diseases instead of focusing only on diabetes or 
and a single disease. Yeah, that's yeah, I agree. That's very, very fascinating. That. But I think that's honestly one of the arguments that aging researchers tend to deflect too easily is the argument of overpopulation and the argument of planetary degradation that they say we have things to argue against that, but I've never actually seen an aging researcher really tackle this problem head on in front of someone and actually really address that problem. Uh, so I think we also need to do some communication around it. That's a good point, yeah. I think it's also really important. Yeah, it's also a tough subject, to be honest, because predicting long-term population growth is very difficult. Let's say if you look at China of the 1960s or 50s, you would think, well, they have a high population growth and, you know, maybe they will end up having 2 billion people and people will starve and run into Malthusian constraints, but behavior adapts and then population actually started to plummet and China will be one of the countries that has a shrinking population and increasing dependency ratio and more and more old people. And if we're very unlucky, we might, this might be the future of all of humanity. And we need to somehow communicate that aging research can even here help by increasing the health of people across the lifespan. So no matter how many people there are, aging research would have some benefits. That, that, that's just one of the things that I find so interesting. Another is like when you talk to people concerned about the environment, how can you make it clear that um, maybe aging research would have benefits? And I like always to say, you know, if you live longer, you will have a stake in the future and you will preserve the health, the planetary health for yourself. Do you think that would be a good argument to convince people? Mm, I think it's, uh, it's, it depends who you're talking to. It can, con it can be an argument for some people, but the people who usually um, have an environmental concern have are such misanthropists, they just think that human beings are trash and they just don't believe that this could be a valid enough of an argument. But to me it is, but it depends on who you're actually addressing. So it's very important when you're trying to convey the message that you know your audience and you know what sort of arguments they can hear and they are ready to hear uh, and how you frame the message. That's also a tricky part. Yeah, I'm also always very grumpy. Like if I read the news in the morning without having had my first coffee, then you see how the world is going to shit, to hell. But the interesting thing is, I don't know if you've ever heard of Steven Pinker. So there are also people who are trying to track how the world is changing for the better. And in many parameters, we have been improving yeah. Yeah. population health to some extent, but also crime rates, homicide rates. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And some people take it further and they're interested like in the long term trajectory of humanity. And some of them are so-called transhumanists. So they're interested like what can we do beyond the human biology or do you have any opinions on this matter have you heard of that term transhumanist yeah mm -hmm. yeah definitely um i think overall it's a really interesting but also difficult topic and i'm also not an expert in, in that um but maybe to add to the discussion i think maybe also as you mentioned it will usually regulate like population growth it will regulate and also if you calculate how much space actual, let's say, 10 billion people would need to still live somewhat comfortable, it's not that much. You can build, in theory, cities with comfortable lifestyle and still have most, most of the world actual um, green and like nature way more than we have at the moment. So in theory, we don't need that much space. At the moment, we are just used to having 
big uh, rooms and uh, gardens uh, for everyone and so on, at least in rural areas. But in theory, we don't need that and people could in theory also adapt to that. Um, whether they want or not is a different question, but I guess there we then have to decide uh, at some point what is really more important. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that we can, um, one of the things that people tend to forget is that the birth rates are also going down in the sense that like, it's not like we are aging, um, uh, we are like prolonging people's lifespan and it's still the same number of children being produced. So at some point the population will level off and probably faster than uh, sooner rather than later for many countries. Um, I want to add to that that the current cons consumption profiles of most people in the world is completely unsustainable and we agree with that. But it's, I don't think it's up to aging researchers to solve that issue. It's governments who need to put the right taxes in the right places in the right government policies. Because at the end of the day, you allow human beings to have a, consume, you know, a consumption behavior that is absolutely outrageous. And we know that by putting the right, the right amount of pressure in the right areas, we can totally uh, live much more sustainably. And there are many technologies that are being developed to produce the same amount of food with a much smaller uh, you know, uh, air, land area. Eating a lot less meat is going to help it tremendously. Preserving uh, natural wildlife areas to restore the biodiversity. I mean, all of these things um, are very promising, which I think is out of the scope of aging, uh, aging research and has to do with government policy. Yeah, but it's still important to us because we need in a way to sell people the idea of a good future if we want to convince them that it's worth living longer and worth investing in longevity research. So we have to, of course, collaborate with the other disciplines. They have to help figure us out how to live within planetary boundaries without decreasing quality of life as much as possible. So it's going to be an exciting future to see how this plays out. And Thanks for the discussion. I think we covered a lot of very different topics. We speculated a lot, which I think is lovely. I think researchers should have a space to speculate and talk about these important topics as well. And I'm looking forward to the last few days of the conference and more exciting talks. Thank you for yeah. having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, that was a great episode. There are a few things I learned today worth pointing out, in no particular order. It seems that clocks measure inflammation as one of their components, and inflammation also increases with age, so that would explain why these clocks increase with age. It might also explain why some aspects of these clocks are perhaps reversible, because inflammation of course is also a very dynamic phenomenon. Then secondly, as far as variability between people and blood cells is concerned, so the biases that blood cell composition can induce for these clocks, it is a problem that has always been on my mind and we discussed this. It seems it might be enough to focus on conserved sites for building clocks, like the sites being used for pan-mammalian clocks to mitigate this issue. I'm not sure, but this kind of clock constructed from conserved sites should be quite immune to changes in blood composition. In this context, it's also interesting to mention that Eric Verdon has recently published a clock that he claims is resistant to changes in immune cell composition. So that's another preprint worth looking out for. Finally, I'm also wondering if there is a way to reconcile the idea of stochastic noise 
with conserved changes that occur in different people at the same genetic site, which Sarah mentioned. And I would speculate that stochastic changes could drive regression to the mean at these sites, which always has a directionality, which would then explain why these changes seem to be conserved between people, even if they're driven by stochastic changes, which themselves are erratic and random. All right, that's all for now.